Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 27, Salt of the Earth. In this episode, we look at how a variety of inorganic materials began to be produced in the 18th and 19th centuries. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. We begin today's episode with the Irish industrial chemist James Muspratt, whom many consider as the founder of the British chemical industry. He was apprenticed to a pharmacist at age 14 and used that practical experience to guide his later pursuits. As a young man in Dublin, he began making potassium ferrocyanide, or as it was called then, prussiate of potassium, which had a yellow color. His method was mixing blood and animal horn, both rich in nitrogen, with potassium carbonate, all in iron containers. The product was a starting material in making Prussian blue, which we heard about previously. From this initial product, Muspratt expanded into making mordants, that is, alum salts, for fixing dyes to textiles. He also manufactured chlorine and bleaching powder, also for textiles, specifically Irish linens. The ancient method of bleaching cloth was by adding ammonia from old urine, lactic acid from sour milk, or just letting the sun do its work by laying cloth out in a field for weeks. But now the newly discovered element of chlorine sped up the process by a thousand times. Another early chemical product was so-called soda, or alkali what we call sodium carbonate. This chemical was important for making soap, paper, and glass, as well as bleaching. Traditionally, soda was extracted from plants. In the Mediterranean, it was found in the barilla plant, a salt-tolerant plant. In Britain, sodium carbonate was extracted from sea kelp, found in the north of Scotland. But during the 18th century, chemists realized that table salt and sodium carbonate both contained the same basic principle, unrecognized but now known as sodium, so there were efforts to convert artificially salt into soda. One early success was James Keir, who was a member of the Lunar Society with Benjamin Franklin and Joseph Priestley, who created a smaller soda factory for his soap business. News of this traveled to France, which was heavily dependent on importation of soda from other lands and potash from the American colonies. During the American Revolution, the British blockaded such imports of potash to France, which was a problem for Lavoisier and his gunpowder works. Thus, the Royal French government offered a prize in 1781 for the simplest and most economical process for decomposing salt— in order to make alkali. A physician who got into chemistry, Nicolas Leblanc, took on the competition in 1784 and was successful in 1789 via a two-stage process. 1. Table salt plus sulfuric acid makes sodium sulfate plus hydrochloric acid vapor. 2. 
sodium sulfate plus charcoal, which is carbon, plus chalk, which is calcium carbonate, makes sodium carbonate plus calcium sulfide plus carbon dioxide gas. Leblanc's patron and former patient, the Duke of Orléans, paid for a prototype factory for this process, and Leblanc gained a patent. Unfortunately, politics interfered with Leblanc as it did with Lavoisier. No prize was granted by this time. The New Republic refused to honor royal prizes, obtaining raw materials was difficult, and the Duke was executed in 1793, so the factory was commandeered by the Republican government. It wasn't until 1800 that Leblanc regained his factory, but he was broke. He eventually committed suicide in 1806. There were other processes available by the early 1800s to synthesize sodium carbonate as well, so much so that the alkali process was the major chemical industrial product for most of the 19th century. I do want to point out something in the Leblanc process. Step 1 makes an intermediate sodium sulfate, but also hydrochloric acid vapor. So in the early 19th century, factories using the Leblanc process were pretty nasty environmentally. The acid fumes and vapors destroyed local agriculture. The Leblanc process also was rather wasteful in terms of reactants used versus products made. By 1863, one estimate claims alkali production required 1.76 million tons of input chemicals but only made 0.28 million tons of alkali. By balancing reactions, we see that the process makes 1.48 million tons of hydrochloric acid byproduct, plus a variety of other solids called tank waste and carbon dioxide gas. We shall discuss environmental chemistry in future episodes, but let it be said that the Leblanc process was certainly not a green process, even though it was quite lucrative and created jobs. There were some lawsuits in Britain and France over the acidic pollution these plants caused, and sometimes the plants were then moved away from farming areas. Some amelioration of the problem happened through innovation. For example, William Gossage in the 1860s figured out how to wash out the HCL from the waste gas in the factory chimneys. In that decade, Walter Weldon and Hugh Deacon invented processes for converting this waste HCL into chlorine for bleaching. There were laws passed in France and Britain over where factories could be built, plus the 1863 Alkali Act required manufacturers to scrub 95% of their acid out of the waste gas. Leblanc's process, in Step 2, also produces calcium sulfide. If vented out in the chimneys, it too produced hydrogen sulfide rain and wasted valuable sulfur that didn't have to be imported from Sicily. Only in the 1880s did Alexander Chance figure out a method to burn hydrogen sulfide back to sulfur and water. With all the waste and pollution, there were efforts to try other methods for manufacturing alkali. The best one, which became widespread in the second half of the 19th century, was invented by Ernst Salve, a Belgian chemist. His method was a tower in which a downward rain of ammoniated salt 
interacted with an upward gas flow of carbon dioxide and prevented pollution. The whole process was self-contained, with the waste product being calcium chloride, a dumpable inorganic compound. The Leblanc process cost 70% more than the Solvay process, and over the course of the later 19th century, industry converted to Solvay's method. By 1920, the last Leblanc factory closed in England. Another inorganic and lucrative chemical commodity was sulfuric acid. Our chemical friend Liebig noted that the commercial prosperity of a nation can be measured by the amount of sulfuric acid it consumes. And the British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli commented something similar. It is still the top chemical produced to this day. Of course, Sigmund Freud remarked in 1930 that soap is a yardstick of civilization. By the 1740s, an initial sulfuric acid process was engineered by John Roebuck in England. His method burned sulfur with potassium nitrate inside enormous lead-lined wooden boxes. The fumes were dissolved in water. This process also was environmentally nasty, producing byproducts of nitrogen oxides into the air. The Glover's Tower, invented in 1859 by John Glover, condensed the fumes and lowered the amount of nitrogen oxides emitted into the atmosphere. Politics also entered into sulfuric acid because British sulfuric acid was imported from Sicily, as I mentioned earlier. To avoid possible embargoes, manufacturers switched to iron pyrite, a mineral with the composition iron sulfide, or chalcopyrite, which is a mixed mineral of copper-iron sulfide. The byproducts in this case were now iron and copper, both useful for industry as well. But the potassium nitrate for the process still was imported, this time from Chile in South America. Geography became important for such industrial processes as well. You wanted to build a factory in or near ports where the raw materials were imported. So factories were constructed in, say, Liverpool in England and Philadelphia in the USA. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. We come back to Justus Liebig, the German chemist, because he was influential in early agricultural chemistry. With population growth in England, fertilizer for farms became crucial in the early 19th century. One of his suggestions was that phosphorus might be required as part of a fertilizer, but plain old ground-up bones, long used as a soil supplement, would be better off if treated with, you guessed it, sulfuric acid, to make the phosphorus more soluble in soil. 
An English aristocrat, Sir John Laws, tried this technique out and patented his so-called superphosphate process and set up a factory for his phosphorus fertilizer in London. The superphosphate process worked well, and within a decade or so there were a number of these plants in both Britain and Germany. By 1900, over four and a half million tons of the fertilizer were produced yearly. What about the humble match? Since prehistoric times, rubbing two sticks together or striking sparks from a flint were pretty much the only way to start fires. And yet, the early 19th century chemists were working to make fire starting easier. The English chemist and inventor John Walker discovered the first practical match in 1827. His concoction was a small wooden or cardboard stick coated with sulfur with a tip of antimony sulfide, potassium chlorate, and gum. He charged one shilling for a box of 50, including a piece of sandpaper to ignite the match. A couple of years later, the English manufacturer Isaac Holden independently invented a sulfur-coated match, but there was no patent dispute because Walker refused to patent his idea. The first phosphorus-tipped match was invented in 1830 by a Frenchman, Charles Sauria. His white phosphorus match had the advantage of no sulfur odor, but the disadvantage of containing white phosphorus, a toxic material, banned in 1906. The modern match tipped with red phosphorus came from an idea by Berzelius, but made practical in 1844 by Swedish chemist Gustav Pasch. But what really drove the Industrial Revolution and 19th century industry was metallurgy. English metallurgist Henry Bessemer was trying to create a projectile for artillery with spin to stabilize its flight path. To put spin on a projectile, you needed a rifled bore in a cannon, that is, with a helical groove cut into the bore. You also needed extremely strong steel to survive the blast of gunpowder and drive the projectile through the rifling. Regular cannon metal was weaker, and steel was expensive at the time. As we shall see in other episodes, the military was always a driving force in technology. The iron of the mid-19th century was cast iron, which contained a significant amount of carbon impurity from the charcoal used in smelting the iron. Cast iron was hard but brittle. With a lot of work, you could remove the carbon to give wrought iron a soft but tough alloy. Then you could re-add carbon in the right amount to make steel. Bessemer researched how to make the steel without the intermediate and expensive wrought iron process. He came up with a way to blow or blast a volume of air through the liquid iron. The air didn't cool down the iron but actually heated it from burning carbon in the air's oxygen. He was able to make steel if he stopped the air flow properly. By 1856, he made his blast furnace public. Steel soon became cheap, and clunky iron technology gave way to stronger steel machinery, bridges, skyscrapers, battleships, and reliable rails for trains. 
Metallurgists experimented with alloying other elements along with carbon to iron. The first use of chromium for steel is recorded by Pierre Berthier, a French geologist, in 1821, and Michael Faraday is also known to have investigated chromium steel for improved scientific instruments and mirrors a year later. Robert Hadfield, an English metallurgist of the later 19th century, found that 12% manganese in steel, heated to 1,000 degrees Celsius, and then quickly quenched in water, was harder than regular steel, but not brittle. He patented his research in 1882, starting the use of alloy steel. Other combinations of steel, including molybdenum, tungsten, chromium, vanadium, and niobium, found use in technology. American inventor Elwood Haynes found that chromium plus nickel in iron formed a stainless steel, one that didn't rust, during his work on engineering automobiles. And he invented a steel he called stellite for cutting tools by 1912. Contemporaneously, the Japanese metallurgist Kotaru Honda discovered a powerfully magnetic steel alloy using cobalt and tungsten in 1919, which he named KS Steel for Kichizaemon Sumitomo, the head of a Japanese firm supporting Honda's research. Today there are a huge variety of steels for all sorts of technological purposes. But there were other elements being investigated, particularly the metal aluminum, the most common metal found on Earth. Of course, it has such a great chemical affinity for oxygen, there's that vague term chemical affinity again, that it wasn't discovered till Humphrey Davy's work in the early 1800s, and finally purified enough in 1827 by Wöhler to be properly characterized. French chemist Henri Saint-Clair-de-Ville, in the mid-19th century, became an expert in the production of aluminum, which remained a luxury item because it was so difficult and expensive to win from its ore. There was no aluminum foil back then, but there was aluminum jewelry, the aluminum tip of the Washington Monument, and Napoleon III's baby son's aluminum rattle. Then two people changed that simultaneously in 1886. The first one was an American undergraduate at Oberlin College. He attended a lecture by chemistry professor Frank Fanning Jewett, in which Jewett showed a sample of aluminum he got from Wöhler, and remarked, If anyone should invent a process by which aluminum could be made on a commercial scale, not only would he be a benefactor to the world, but would also able to lay up for himself a great fortune. Hall decided to work on this question starting in 1881. He worked in a home laboratory with his older sister, Julia Brainerd Hall, also a chemist. Hall's first attempt was to smelt aluminum-bearing clay with charcoal and potassium chlorate. That failed. Then he tried by researching cheaper ways to make aluminum chloride. By Hall's senior year at Oberlin, he tried to electrolyze aluminum fluoride in an aqueous solution, but could not get aluminum at the cathode. Eventually, though, he hit upon a working system. Discovered on February 23, 1886, Hall's method passes electricity through a hot bath of alumina, aluminum oxide, 
dissolved in cryolite, an aluminum containing rare mineral. The system reduces aluminum to metallic form, creating a pool of liquid metal at the bottom of the vessel. Hall filed his patent on July 9, 1886. But as I said, another person was working on this as well. Paul Heroul, a young Frenchman nearly obsessed with aluminum, a dropout of the Ecole des Mines in Paris, spent years on the idea. His father died, and he borrowed his mother's last 50,000 francs to buy an electric generator to run his experiments. Eventually, he came up with a practically identical method to Hall and filed his patent on April 23, 1886. The process for making aluminum electrolytically is now called the Hall Heroux process. After some legal wrangling, Hall and Heroux reached an agreement on use of their process. It took years for Hall to get investors to help him scale up the process to industrial level. He worked with Alfred Hunt in 1888 to found the Pittsburgh Reduction Company. From $26 per kilogram in the 1880s, the cost of aluminum metal dropped to $4.50 per kilogram. Soon thereafter, the new company opened operations in Niagara Falls, and the price eventually fell to $0.66 cents per kilogram. The company renamed itself Aluminum Company of America in 1907. And then Alcoa in the 1990s. Even aluminum was found to be improved as an alloy. A German metallurgist, Alfred Wilm, found that aluminum mixed with 4% copper, 1% silicon, 0.6% manganese, and 0.3% iron was found to be useful and eventually came to be called duralumin. Aluminum is only one third the weight of steel, so it soon became important in the early aircraft industry. Another case of inorganic chemistry in the 19th century I shall mention, which was the element fluorine. Fluorine was everywhere but could not be electrolyzed out of its compounds. No matter how hard chemists tried, and some even died in the attempt. Technically, it could be electrolyzed, but fluorine is so reactive, the most reactive element in the universe, that as soon as it was a free gas, it would react with the container itself into a compound. The first chemist to actually isolate fluorine as an element chose the following path. He plated all of his equipment with expensive platinum because platinum seemed to be relatively unreactive to fluorine. Second, as we know from thermodynamics, chemical activity rises with temperature, so he chilled everything in contact with fluorine down to minus 50 degrees Celsius. In 1886, the same year that Hall and Heroul won aluminum cheaply from its ores, Frenchman Henri Moisson. Electrolyzed potassium hydrogen difluoride dissolved in hydrofluoric acid. A most horrendously reactive system indeed. And it worked. He got a pale yellow diatomic gas. He received the 1906 Nobel Prize for his fluorine research. Fluorine became very important in the 20th century for a variety of products, and we shall revisit it. A most important compound that was invented in the early 1890s with a patent application in 
was by Edward Acheson, who first helped Thomas Edison with better production of carbon filaments for his first electric light bulbs. Acheson declared in his patent that he mixed carbon, silica, which is basically purified sand, clay, and salt, then heated it all. The product was a new abrasive called silicon carbide, nearly as hard as diamond. By the way, Acheson was eventually awarded a Perkin Medal from the American Chemical Society. In our next episode, we focus on a particular kind of industrial chemistry, that chemistry primarily used in warfare. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.